Thanks so much, guys, for leading us this morning. Um, <clears throat> it's good to be together. Uh, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. Um, hey, have you ever, let me ask a question this morning just to kick things off. Have you ever had uh, a dream, a goal, an ambition um, that was derailed or crushed by someone else? It happened to me 23 years ago. Um, I had just gotten into mountaineering, and one of my dreams was to climb Mount Rainier in Washington. Uh, Mount Rainier is covered in glaciers. Uh, It's probably the most challenging climb in the lower uh, 48. I was with a few friends, and we were with a bigger group of about 12 people. Um, And we climbed for two days, uh, starting at about 4,000 feet. It's at 14,000 feet. So for two days, we climbed until we got to this outcropping of rock, the highest, most point before you get on top of the glacier. Um, And when you're on a glacier, you have to rope up because there's all these crevasses that you have to navigate. And the crevasses are basically huge cracks in the ice. And if you fall in one, um, it's it's not good at all. Uh, And just to give you a sense of scale, um, this is what we went up. These you see those little dots right there. Those are people. Uh, so that's how big the mountain is from that point on and how big um, the crevasses are. Uh, but we left to make our summit attempt at midnight. So it was dark. Uh, and all we had was headlamps on. And we're hiking in the dark in order to make it to the summit. It's dark. It's lonely. It's cold. It's really hard. Um, but this is one of my dreams. It's one of my goals. I had prepared for months. Uh, I had gotten in shape. I had trained. I had gotten all the right gear. I, I had you know, uh, learned what it what it would look like to be on a rope team, how to do self-rest, how to do all those kinds of things. Um, I was determined to make it to the top. And so we started hiking at night, and uh, about four hours in, um, some people on my team started getting sick, high-altitude sickness, uh, headaches, nausea, throwing up. And it's really hard there because you're going from a really low elevation elevation pretty high up pretty quick. And so a portion of our group had to turn around. The rest of us kept going. And then about 8 a.m., the sun had come up. We're actually above the clouds, uh, and we have about a thousand more feet to go, and someone else gets violently sick, and another team has to turn around and head back down. We started with three rope teams. We had gotten down to two, and now we were down to one. And there's not enough rope for everyone to keep going. You can only have about five people max on one rope in order for it to be safe. Somebody had to turn around and head back down with the sick guy. And I drew the short straw. So as I walked back down the mountain that morning, I was angry. I was disappointed. I was resentful of this guy I'm basically having to carry down who's throwing up like every three minutes along the way. And all I could think about was how he ruined my dream. He's the reason that I didn't make it to the top. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe not about mountains, but about something else in life where you got close to something you wanted really badly and then something or oftentimes someone else derailed it? Well, today we're going to continue in our series on the life of David, and I'm going to introduce you to a new character, a guy named Jonathan, who knows exactly what it's like to have your dream shattered by someone else. 
Jonathan was Saul's firstborn son. Saul was the king of Israel at the time. And in the ancient Near East, monarchies were hereditary, which meant the firstborn son would become the next king. The lineage would always pass to, through the sons who would become the next heir to the throne. So Jonathan was up in line to be heir to the throne whenever Saul died. And so all throughout Jonathan's boyhood, he's taught what it means to be the next king of Israel. He's told this is what kings do. This is how they act. These are the decisions that they make. As he got older, he's given military training. He's given charge over armies. He's given more responsibility. He's given more leadership opportunities. And then, if you've been reading the story along with us, Saul begins to falter as king. Saul begins to make mistakes. Saul begins to lose the respect of the people. And at the same time this is happening to Saul, we read stories about Jonathan demonstrating character. Jonathan demonstrating leadership ability. He's aggressive. He's assertive. He leads his men into battle. He's winning victories. He's winning the respect of his men. He's winning the respect of the people. Everything is pointing to Jonathan becoming the next leader of Israel. Jonathan being the Israel that leader, the, the, the leader that Israel is actually needing, the leader that God is probably looking for. But then, one day, as Saul and Jonathan are standing on a hillside, everything changes. Because they're looking down at this battlefield, and the armies of the Philistines are on one side, and the armies of the Israelites on the other side, and this unknown shepherd boy goes marching across the field. He's not a soldier. He's not even in the army. He has no military training. He comes from a family of nobodies. And they watched David march down into the valley. And you know the story. No armor, no sword, just a shepherd's staff in one hand and a sling in the other. He faces the giant Goliath. And it's on that day when David kills Goliath that the eyes and the affection of the nation of Israel shifted from Saul and his household to David. It's in that one day, in that one act, that David gains the fear and the respect of all of the Philistine armies and he gains the fear and the respect of all of the Israelite armies. He gains the praise and the adoration of the Israelite people. In fact, when David and Saul come back from the battle that day, we're told that all the women of Israel come out to, to meet them and to greet them, and they're dancing and they're singing. And do you know the song they're singing? It's this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. You see, before this day, David was a nobody. He's just a teenager He's unknown. And now he's more popular than the very king of Israel himself. Now the nation is enamored with David, not with Saul anymore. It's enamored with David and his future, not Saul and his son Jonathan and their future. And in one afternoon, everything that Jonathan had been preparing for suddenly changed. And Saul is furious about it. Saul sees the writing of the wall. And when he hears the women singing about David, and when he sees all the praise and adoration given to David, look at what Saul does. 
It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me, with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. See, Saul saw the writing on the wall. He knew this guy is going to steal the kingdom from us. And as a result, Saul began to hate David. He began to fear David. He began to resent David. He even started sending David into battles that he thought David would lose so that he would lose respect in the eyes of the people or maybe even David would get killed. But David actually kept winning the battles. Against all odds, David was more successful and the people grew to love David more and more and it becomes more and more clear David is going to be the next king of Israel. Now, there's no way I can fully capture the emotion that's going on here, but Jonathan, as the person who's next in line to be king, has every reason in the world to hate David, to resent David, to fear David, to be threatened by David's rise to power. Because from a practical standpoint, David basically ruins Jonathan's life. And you would expect Jonathan to respond to David the same way his dad does, right? Because David doesn't deserve this. David's a nobody. David hasn't been prepared for this. David hasn't spent his whole life working towards this. David got lucky with one stone one day, right? But Jonathan's response to the situation is so totally different. It's the opposite of Saul's. Response. In fact, it's the opposite of the way most of us respond when things don't go our way. When we don't get what we feel like we deserve. I want to show you today how Jonathan responds. Because it becomes a model for David and it can be a model for every single one of us. Look at what Jonathan does. This is right after David defeats Goliath and Saul is worried about David's growing power. It says this. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day on, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. So this is where Saul begins to keep a close eye on David because he's scared of him. But Jonathan, on the other hand, actually becomes friends with David. He develops this relationship with David. He becomes close to David. It says he grows to even love David. And not in any kind of romantic way. That's not what the wording or the context means at all. That's not really in the original story. No, he just begins to to love David almost like a brother. And then it says this, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now there's a whole lot going on in this one action. Let me, under, let me help you understand what this word covenant means because the word covenant is really important. A covenant is like a contract between two people. 
But it's not just a business thing. A business thing is where you just sort of sign a contract and you agree to do something for the other person. But a covenant has a very deep relational element. A covenant says we are in this together. We are in this for the sake of each other. We want what's best for each other. That's why we say that marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract, right? And so Jonathan makes this covenant with David. And in order to symbolize what he means by the covenant, he gives him his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now think about these things. His robe and his tunic, these were the royal clothes. They would have had the royal markings on them. They would have marked Jonathan as coming from the house of Saul, as Jonathan next in line to be the king. Jonathan is the prince waiting to take the throne. And Jonathan is taking these royal clothes and he's giving them to David. And basically he's saying, everything I have, everything that is due to me, the royal honors and rights and privileges, I give them all to you. He also gives him his sword, his bow, his belt, which is, is a way of saying, I give my loyalty to you. I give my protection to you. I'm going to serve you now. I will protect you now. I will go and fight for you now. I will defend you now. And, and, and in the broader story, there's actually some some interesting literary stuff going on here because uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, we were let in on the secret that God has picked a new king for the nation of Israel as David, but nobody else knows it at that point. But then David defeats Goliath. And do you remember in that episode, Saul tries to give his armor to David? So the, the royal armor is being given to David and now the royal clothes are being given to David. And on the battlefield that day, David captures the sword of the greatest Philistine army. And now he's being given the sword of the greatest Israelite soldier. And it's almost like everything that the narrator is trying to let us know is everyone is beginning to realize David is now going to be the next king of Israel. It's all shifted to David. And then you have Jonathan, the guy who's losing all. The guy who's losing his future job, his future role, and he's pledging loyalty and protection to David. I mean, that makes no sense. If I'm Jonathan, I'm yelling at God, God, why are you punishing me for some mistakes my dad made? I mean, I get it that my dad made mistakes. I get it that he's not a great king anymore. But I could be a great king. I've been preparing for this all my life. You know everything I've done. You know the kind of leadership I would bring. I could do this. Why have you taken this away from me and given it to somebody who has no training, who's never been prepared for this, who might be a terrible leader? We just don't know. I haven't done anything wrong, God. I've done everything right from day one. Why would you take this away from me? Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> Have you ever been so angry or bitter at a situation that's unfolded in your life where something is taken away from you? Maybe someone has taken something away from you or you didn't get what you deserved? Uh, maybe it was a promotion <laughs> or a job or a raise and someone else got it, but you feel like you deserved it way more. Maybe somebody else is getting the attention, the praise, 
the accolades. When we're looking at them and we're saying, I worked just as hard. Or I deserve it just as much and nobody's talking about me. Or maybe when everything's going great in the relationship and all of a sudden he screws it all up or she screws it all up. And and it's not fair because you did everything right and now you're suffering the consequences of what they've done. Or in my life, a number of years ago, my wife Janice and I, we were having trouble getting pregnant. And uh, we tried. We did everything. We prayed to God. We helped little old ladies across the street. Like, we were doing everything right in our lives, and it just wasn't happening. And it seemed like everyone else around us was getting pregnant. Like every couple we knew, like they would just go home at night and kiss and a baby would pop out. And it's like, what in the world? And we would look at their lives and we would think they would be horrible parents, God. Like we, were, we would be so much better parents. Why in the world are you blessing them, but not us? And then we have Jonathan, who has every right in the world to say to God, I'm the one who deserves to be king. I've worked so hard for this. I've earned this. I've prepared my whole life for this. And Jonathan could have said, I'm not going to go down without a fight. Right? Because that's basically what Saul does. Saul's angry. Saul's scared. He's trying to hold on and cling to what he has. He's trying to hold on to this, this kingdom and not let go of it. In fact, Saul then goes on to put David in compromising situations. He tries to make sure David fails and it doesn't happen. He tells Jonathan he's not going to go after David, but then secretly he does go after David. And in fact, on one occasion, he finds out that Jonathan, his own son, is helping David. And Saul goes ballistic. Look at what he says. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. That's great. That's Saul's wife, by the way, right? Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? He can't even speak David's name now. He just begins to call him the son of Jesse. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? He keeps bringing her into it, right? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. See, this is super clear to Saul. He's taking the kingdom away from us. And it's not just us. He's taking your kingdom away from you, Jonathan. Don't you see that? Why in the world would you help him? For Saul, it is so clear. And so the the best solution to this is like, hey, let's send for him. Go get him. Bring him here. We have to kill him. Now, I'm guessing all of us have been in some tough situations in our lives. I don't know if we've ever gotten to the point where the only solution we have is let's just go find the person and kill them. Like that's the only way I feel like I can deal with this. But that's what this has gotten to. I I mean, this is so deep, the emotions here. I mean, Saul has been doing this his whole life and he sees the one thing that he's about to hand off to his son. 
Do you see how significant and emotional this would have been? Everything he's about to give to his son is about to be ripped away by this guy named David. And then we have Jonathan. And Jonathan's not just neutral about it. He doesn't just tolerate it or put up with it. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't say, Dad, um, I think you need to chillax, right? You're, just, you're overdoing this a little bit. We'll figure out. We don't have to kill him. We'll, we'll figure out a way to make it all work. No. He actually pursues and embraces and pledges his whole life and loyalty and protection to the very guy who's taking the kingdom away from him. Which I think brings us to the real question of the story. Why does Jonathan do that? What does Jonathan know? What does he see? What does he understand that gives him such a different perspective? Because the perspective that Jonathan has ends up shaping David significantly. It's a perspective David's going to adopt at some point in his life. And it's a perspective that you and I need to consider as well. Whenever we face these difficult situations... In our own lives. Jonathan's trying to deal with his father. And look at what he says to David one day. He, then Jonathan said to David. I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan be it ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. So Jonathan comes to David one day and he's saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. My father is out to get you. I'm not going to let him get you. And they come up with this plan and it's sort of an intricate plan. And you can go read the details for yourself. It's in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20. But from this point on, Jonathan decides he's going to protect David from his father. But look at what he says next in the conversation. He says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of of the earth. Jonathan is acknowledging, look, God has shown me unfailing kindness, and I want to ask you to keep doing the same towards me. This is a, a relationship and a covenant that goes both ways, and it's going to be a multi-generational covenant. Basically, Jonathan is saying, I'm going to protect you as long as I live, and as long as you become the king. And I'm going to ask that you'll continue to show kindness to me even when you become the king. And you'll continue to show kindness even to my family. And that's going to be really important, as we'll see in a few weeks. But Jonathan's key statement in this whole exchange with David is right there at the beginning. It's the key to his entire perspective. It's what made Jonathan so different from Saul. Jonathan simply says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. You see, Jonathan recognized 
And he surrendered to the fact that God had chosen David to be the king. He recognized God had initially chosen Saul, and now God has chosen David. God has made his decision. God has made his choice. David's going to be the next king. It's not going to be me. And that leaves Jonathan with a choice. I can resist a decision that God has already made, or I could surrender myself to that decision. And not just surrender myself to that decision, but I could actually commit to making sure that God's decision becomes a reality. And that's exactly what Jonathan does. That's why Jonathan makes a covenant with David. He doesn't make a covenant with David because he thinks David deserves to be the next king or even because he thinks David will be a better king than he'll be. He just makes a covenant with David because God had already made a decision. And he could have pitched a fit, right? He could have thrown a temper tantrum. He could have cried out to God. He could have complained and talked about how unfair this is. He could have pointed to David and said, David doesn't know anything about what it means to be a king. He's a shepherd. What does he know? He didn't grow up with a father as king. He didn't see the mistakes that were made. He didn't see what we should do when we lead as a king. He could have focused on David exactly the way his father did. But Jonathan realized the issue is not David. It's not David's character. It's not what David deserves. It's not how good David's going to be at this. The issue is God's made a decision. And I can complain about it. I can pitch a fit about it like my dad is. Or I could surrender to a choice that God had made, even if I don't understand it or agree with it. Now, here's the lesson for us. Here's where the rubber really meets the road for us. We need to realize that God has made some decisions About us, too. He's made some decisions about you and me. And in the midst of those decisions, our tendency is to focus on our own dreams, on our own plans, on our own goals, on our own kingdom, on the throne that we feel like we've deserved. But you know what? Sometimes God decides that you shouldn't be king or I shouldn't be king. You see, God's made a lot of decisions about us. When he created you and me, right? He decided some people were going to be richer and some people were going to be poorer. Some were going to be a whole lot better looking. Some were going to be smarter. Some were going to be more talented. Some people were going to be way more outgoing. Some people were going to grow up in really good families and some people were going to grow up in really hard families. God made all kinds of decisions about us just when he created us. He also decided to give every single one of us freedom to do whatever we want. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that sometimes other people's freedom threatens my kingdom. (laughs) Other people's freedom threatens my little world, my goals, my dreams. But God decided he was going to give all of us freedom. And our dilemma is this, do we spend our lives complaining to God and getting angry because we don't get what we want or we don't feel like we got what we deserve, what we should have gotten or deserved, or are we willing like Jonathan to stand back and say, God, 
You've made a sovereign decision. And I'm going to trust in your unfailing kindness toward me. The Hebrew word that's used there is the word chesed. And it means unfailing kindness or unconditional love. Am I going to trust that you love me? Not because of what I've done or what I'm capable of doing, but you simply love me for who I am. And if that's the kind of love that you have for me, then no matter what comes into my life or what situations I find myself in, especially when things aren't going my way, especially when my plans aren't working out the way I thought, especially when I don't get the kingdom that I deserve, I'm going to see it all as part of your sovereign choice for me. And I'm going to surrender to that choice in my life. And by the way, this isn't easy. It's not practical at all. It's not natural. When we don't get what we feel like we deserve, the natural response is to be angry, to be upset, to fight for it, to go down kicking and screaming, to get bitter, right? And by the way, this is not about systemic injustice, which God cares deeply about. This isn't about when one person abuses another person, which God also cares deeply about. This is about when my plans don't go my way. This is about when my kingdom is threatened. This is about when that happens, are we willing to ask this question? If there's a God who loves me unconditionally and he has allowed this to happen, then how should I respond? If God has made his choice and I know that he loves me, then how should I respond? That's the question that Saul never asked. And he spent the rest of his life fighting with God about a decision that God had already made. So let me ask you, are there any decisions that God has made that you're still arguing with him about? Are there any places in your life where you're angry or bitter or resentful because you didn't get what you wanted or you didn't get what you felt like you deserved? You've got a choice. You can go down kicking and screaming like Saul did. And we'll see that doesn't end up very well. Or you can be like Jonathan. And you can ask, look, if God loves me and he's sovereign and he allowed this to go this way, then how should I respond in light of that? Let me pray for us and we'll wrap up. <clears throat> God, this is not easy. Um, and so I pray specifically for anyone who might be listening or here today who is in one of those situations where things haven't gone their way. And it's hard. And it's been painful. <clears throat> and God, we need to know in those situations that you really do love us because sometimes we think you don't. We need to know that you really do care that you're with us in that. And if there's any one of us that is still clinging to our kingdom, there's still clinging to our position, there's still clinging to all of those arguments that we have in our mind at night about what we deserve, about what's ours, about how hard we've worked, about how unfair it all is, would you just be present with us in that? Would you gently give us the perspective Jonathan had? And would you help us surrender that to you? Pray this in your name.
Amen.